In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. When I was growing up, I was not a big fan of ballet. I don't know if that comes as a surprise to you or not. I had three older brothers. Uh, so I had much training in the ways of manhood, without a doubt. Uh, and um, appreciating ballet it didn't seem to, f it was not part of the curriculum. Um, started to change, I think, probably when I saw West Side Story for the first time, which is cool because, you know, people die. And, um, you know, that's probably the first time I thought dancing might be perhaps okay or kind of cool. Um, as an adult, I probably saw the Nutcracker. I know I saw it at least once live um, in Moscow. That was impressive, but I was way up high. I, they were just like little white dots just bouncing around. But uh, uh, maybe eight years ago, it was right before I came here from New York City, a friend invited me to the Met to go to the ballet. And the seats were pretty good. They weren't front row, but the seats were pretty good. And I was absolutely blown away at, uh, at the athleticism and the power and the grace and the beauty of everything that was going on. And it wasn't, it wasn't a modern ballet where it was more of an athletic uh, you know, display, but it was, it was something really incredible. And it's probably one thing that ballet has in common with hockey, which is that unless you're pretty close, you don't appreciate what's going on. When you're close enough that you can see how superhuman these uh, activities are, it, uh, it's categorically different. But when you appreciate what they're doing, it's absolutely astounding. You realize then that becoming a ballet dancer or becoming a hockey player isn't just a matter of watching them and imitating them. Watching what they do and then trying to do the same thing. You, you simply, you can't get there from here. There are muscles that you don't even have that you need in order to be able to do what they do. And there, there are skills that need to be learned so that you don't even have to think about them in order to be able to do creatively what they, what they do, right? Because they're not thinking about their skating or they're not thinking about their, their feet and their legs because they're thinking about what they're actually producing. You can't read the Beatitudes and say, okay, um, I'm gonna do that. If you understand what the Beatitudes are, if you think about it, and realize that this is the description of holiness, this is really the description of the suffering servant, this is the description of Christ on the cross, you can't just simply say, those are nice, um, I'll just, I'll do likewise. That's impossible, you can't get there from here. And since we're talking about something supernatural, it's even that much more impossible 
to just simply get there by virtue of trying to imitate what you see or trying to get there by human effort and determination. It is a work of grace to make you holy. Without divine grace in this way, you might be able to do some impressive things because you were made in the image and likeness of God. So there are things you can do by virtue of your intelligence with which you were born, your wit, your personality. There, there are things you'll be able to do that please people. There are good things you'll be able to do. There are bad things you'll be able to avoid, perhaps mainly through fear. But still, but becoming holy is utterly impossible by these ordinary efforts. It is only by being completely open to the work of God, completely receptive to divine grace, that we can be made holy. So we can't make the effort to become holy. We can make the effort to have an interior life, to have a life of prayer, which is much more than just simply a life of saying prayers. There has to be an actual relationship with the Lord, which involves time spent just with him doing nothing else. If we read the classic spiritual authors, they would tell us 15 minutes a day minimum. Which translates into a rosary prayed very slowly, where you're not really thinking about the prayers that you're saying. You're just simply being lost in this meditation on our Lord. You're just simply with him. The, the prayers and the beads simply sort of a non-chronological way of keeping time. It's another way of also helping you stay focused and not thinking immediately about the coffee that you want or the dinner you're supposed to make or what's waiting for you in the office a few hours from now. We can't make the effort to become holy, but we can make the effort to have an interior life. The second reading today adds a, as an element of, of um, urgency to it. If Christ is preached as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? St. Paul poses the question to the Corinthians in this way because some people were saying, well, it's absurd that you're claiming that we will rise from the dead. If someone believes that Jesus Christ really did rise from the grave, then it's nonsense for you to say the resurrection of the dead is a non-reality for us. If it's a non-reality for us because it's impossible, then it was impossible for him. But you say that he rose from the dead. Do you really believe it? Because if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, all of this is nonsense. The only reason why the Christian faith makes any sense whatsoever, the reason why it's actually worth doing, besides the fact that it's true, but the reason why its truth is evident is that this leads to eternal life. 
That's the only thing it offers. It's the only thing it promises is eternal life. If there is no resurrection after the dead, we are utterly silly and stupid and giving up and making sacrifices for, for, for naught. The only reason why this makes sense, the only reason why this is worth doing is for eternal life, is for the resurrection of the dead. So let's, the Beatitudes refer to that, right? Rejoice and leap for joy in that day. Behold, your reward will be great in heaven. But St. Paul makes it clear to the Corinthians, this is the only thing that you have to look forward to. It's not like there will be many other rewards and many other compensations. It is the resurrection of the dead for which we do all this for eternal life. Right now, it might not seem so important because there's other things that we have to look forward to today and tomorrow, and maybe for a few weeks and maybe for a few years, but really, in a very short period of time, the resurrection of the dead is the only thing that will matter to all of us. Whether or not we rise to eternal life is the only thing that will matter, and it will be, the, and it will be everything. That's the goal, is, is, is beatitude with God, perfect holiness with the Lord in heaven. So we really should ask ourselves and remind ourselves, is that what I want? Do I, do I want that? Because it means I want something that's impossible for me to achieve on my own. So what am I doing to try to, to arrive at that point? Do I, am I living an interior life so that that will eventually happen? Or am I saying cynically, I deliberately do not want that to happen, but I don't want to end up separated from God forever. So I want something in the middle, right? To just barely avoid displeasing God enough that I'm separated from him mortally. The problem with that is that we eventually get to the point where we've actually developed an aversion to becoming holy, where we actually don't want to be holy. And that's a really dangerous position to be in. Because you can't say, I want, I want the life of heaven, but I don't want to be holy. Well, which is it that you want? Because you're saying two completely different things. I've been on retreat all this past week, so if you didn't see me Sunday evening through Friday evening, that's why. And there's something that, that struck me on Friday that I'll probably repeat too many times. Um, but won't be too many times until you hear me say it at least once. There are a lot of people who want to live a life that's disease-free, but they don't want to live a healthy life. And by the same token, there's a lot of people who want to live a life that's free of evil, but they don't want to live a holy life. So we have to choose. Am I simply, am I trying to live an unhealthy life, but with medicine and technology not pay the price for it? 
Now, granted, you can live a healthy life and still bad things happen to you, right? Someone gets you sick or some accident happens. That's reality. That's a case when you simply know, okay, well, it's God's will for me to endure this. So I will uh, without um, blaming myself for it. And by the same token, holy life doesn't, doesn't mean that um, evil doesn't afflict you, whether it be because of somebody else or just simply because it's your time. But we can't possibly want to live without evil and still not live a holy life, or at least not try. So the Lord is reminding us that ultimately we do want to become holy. Eventually that will be the only thing that we desire. And if we're more deliberate about it now, we'll open ourselves up to the means that make that possible. Having been fed with this heavenly food, we pray always to desire it and to seek it out. We don't know how to become holy. I would barely know how to put on hockey skates, let alone toe shoes. I certainly don't know how to be holy, but, but we can be willing to be taught We can, we can open ourselves up to the one who not only shows us how to do this, but, but actually does it inside of us, who makes it possible by living within us. So we ask the Lord who has died and who has risen to live within us, that we may have eternal life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.